I hope you picked up a uh, copy of the uh, sermon notes uh, this morning that will uh, help you if you failed to do so. Uh, you're welcome to pick one of those up as you leave the service uh, today. And I'm not going to have very long for the message this morning uh, as we uh, celebrate the Lord's Supper in just a, uh, a moment, uh, but we'll try to touch on uh, these uh, first uh, few verses in the book of Hebrews. Uh, last Sunday, I shared with you an introduction to the book of Hebrews, and today we begin to examine the book uh, by going verse by verse. I would like to take just a moment uh, to review some of the more important points from the introduction uh, last week. Uh, first, the recipients. Who was the book of Hebrews written to? As we saw last week, we are not given their specific identity, but by looking at clues within the text of the book, we saw the, the recipients very likely were the members, as you see there in your notes, a house church of Jewish Christians who lived in Rome. Uh, this finds strong support from chapter 10, verses 32 through 34, where the persecution described is consistent with the hardships borne by Jewish Christians in Rome after the edict issued against them by the Emperor, Emperor Claudius in 49 AD. Uh, that edict uh, expelled Jewish Christians from Rome uh, because of their evangelistic efforts, uh, which were stirring up trouble in the Jewish quarters there in Rome due to their emphasis on Jesus being the Messiah. Under an edict of expulsion, uh, you would see insult, imprisonment, and especially the seizure of their property. And uh, this fits perfectly with the description in Hebrews 10 of what the recipients of the book experienced in the early days of their Christian faith. Next, the occasion. What were the circumstances of the recipients that motivated the writing of the book? And again, Look there in your notes. Uh, these Jewish Christians had started well, but were now struggling with the cost of commitment to Christ in light of a new persecution, Nero's persecution, that began in 64 A.D., which included imprisonment, torture, and now martyrdom, something the Christian community had not faced prior to this time on any widespread basis. Since confessing Christ could cost their lives, some began to withdraw from church meetings. The church is described as being in spiritual retreat and in danger of denying Christ to save their lives. Bottom line, they had grown weary and they were frightened of living the Christian faith in a society that had become increasingly hostile to their faith. Hebrews is a sermon to a church in a crisis of faith and a failure of nerve. And this helps us understand the purpose of the book. Hebrews was written to encourage the frightened members of the house church to maintain their Christian faith, to maintain their Christian confession by keeping their eyes fixed on the supremacy of Christ and His salvation, and to warn them of the catastrophic consequences of renouncing their faith. 
As I shared last Sunday, the great value of Hebrews for us today is it provides the remedy for all backsliding as it exalts the prize of Jesus Christ. No other book in the Bible presents the supremacy and the glory of Christ like the book of Hebrews. The application being the worth of the prize of Christ far exceeds the cost of following Him. And this brought us to the central theme of the book, the absolute necessity of not falling away from the living God, but to press on unto maturity by obeying what God has spoken through His Son. From the beginning of the book of Hebrews to the very end, we are admonished over and over again to heed what God has spoken in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, last week, I did not have the time to touch on the next point, the interpretive key, which is the example of Israel at Kadesh Barnea, which is the focus of Hebrews chapters 3 and 4. And of course, we'll deal deal with this in more detail when we get to that portion, but this is such an important uh, portion of the book, which again, I believe is the interpretive key. And remember, the children of Israel were redeemed from bondage in Egypt by the blood of the Passover lamb. They were saved. They began well. But when they arrived at Kadesh Barnea, due to fear and unbelief, they came to a standstill, and they refused to go forward as God had commanded them into the promised land. The consequences were devastating. Instead of experiencing all the blessings God had intended for them to experience... They wandered 40 years in the wilderness. Now, the question for the Jewish Christians to whom the book of Hebrews was written, and the same question for us today is, will we make the same mistake? Or will we press on into maturity through the obedience of faith to experience all the blessings God has for us? When God speaks, there are only two possible responses. You can believe Him and go forward in obedience, or you can doubt Him and go backward in unbelief and disobedience. We now come to the first three verses of the book, which set the tone for the entire uh, book uh, concerning the supremacy of Christ and the need to heed His Word. And in these first three verses, we just discover two uh, fundamental truths, but very important truths. And the first one is this, that you see there in your sermon notes. The Word of God's Son is superior to the Old Testament prophets. The Word of God's Son is superior to the Old Testament prophets. Look at verse 1 and the very first part of verse 2. God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers... In the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in His Son. Now, that next statement in your notes sums it up. Jesus is superior. Why? Because He is God's eternal Son. And you have the seven references there that emphasize the fact that Jesus is God's Son in the book of Hebrews. Jesus is not just an instrument of God as the prophets were. He is God Himself, speaking God's final word, and we are to listen to Him. 
And that's the thrust of the entire book of Hebrews. This is God's Son who has spoken God's final word, and we are to listen to Him. In Matthew 17, verse 5, God the Father spoke this concerning His Son. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. Really listen. Heed what He says. Obey what He says. And then in Hebrews 12, 25, we read, See to it that you do not refuse (coughs) Him who is speaking. Now, we don't need to make this complicated. Uh, The simpler, the better. At the beginning of the book, at the beginning of the book, we are brought face to face with God, who has spoken to us through His Son. His Son, who is worthy of our undivided attention, our undying affection, and our uncompromising allegiance, regardless the cost. And this brings us to the second point. And that is the proofs of Christ's supremacy. And there are six which are mentioned. First, Christ is the heir. Christ is the heir. Hebrews 1 verse 2, whom He appointed heir of all things. This points to the end of history when Jesus will inherit all things in heaven and on earth. And don't forget, in Romans eight seventeen. Christians are said to be what? Co-heirs with Jesus Christ. Now, think of the bearing that this would have had on these Jewish Christians who were suffering persecution. See, when you see that Christ is the heir of all things and that you are a co-heir with Christ, then you can say, let them take my property. Because in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, God has spoken, and His Word is final. I have an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away reserved in heaven. You can say, let me suffer persecution, because God's Son spoke in Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 and 12, and His Word is the final Word. Blessed are you. When they cast insults at you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me, rejoice and be glad. Why? For your reward is great in heaven. You can say, let them take my life. Because in Philippians chapter 1 verse 21 and 2 Corinthians 5 verse 8, God has spoken and His word is final. To die is gain. And to be absent from the Lord is to be To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Instant death just means what? Instant glorification. Look at the next point. Christ is not only heir, He's the creator. Hebrews 1, again verse 2, through whom also He made the world. Now, how did God create the universe? We're told in Psalm 33, 6, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of His mouth, all their host. If God, by merely speaking, could create the entire universe out of nothing, then truly nothing is impossible for God. Therefore, why worry about anything? And also, if He could speak and create this magnificent universe that you see, Don't you think He can make you a new creation? 
and do a miraculous work in your heart and in your life? Look at the next point. Christ is the revealer, Hebrews 1.3. And He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature. Do you want to see God? Do you want to know what God is like? How God thinks, how God feels, God's plans and purposes and power? Then look at Jesus. To look at Jesus, to see Jesus, is to see God. As the words of the great hymn read, O soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. There's a light for a look at the Savior and life more abundant and free. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Notice the next point. Christ is the sustainer. Again, Hebrews 1 verse 3. And He upholds all things by the word of His power. See, if it were not for the word of Christ holding all things together, this universe would literally fly apart into chaos, collision, and annihilation. And if Christ's word can hold the whole universe together, don't you think His word can hold you together when your life, when it seems like your life or your family is falling apart? Look at the next point. Christ is the Redeemer. Again, Hebrews 1 verse 3, when He made purification of sins. Christ is not only the revealer of God, He is the Redeemer of man. Paul wrote in Ephesians 1 7, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our sins, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us. Your sin might be great this morning, but God's grace is greater. He is the only one that can purge your soul and your conscience of the dark and deep stains of sin. And then the last proof that we see of the supremacy of Christ, He is the supreme ruler of all. Again, Hebrews 1.3, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, we'll see that phrase two more times through our study of the book of Hebrews. And the fact that He sat down indicates that the work of redemption is finished. And now God has exalted Him to that place of supreme authority. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 through 22, we read, He raised Him, He raised Jesus from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And He put all things, all things in subjection under His feet, and gave Him head over all things to the church. And so the question is, is Christ and His Word ruling your life? Have you submitted to His authority, making Christ preeminent over your life, giving Him control of every area of your life. Now, as we conclude, look at just three very simple lessons uh, from our study today, not only for the Hebrews back then, but for us today. And it's important to put these three lessons in the context of the Hebrew struggle and the struggles that we have. They were suffering, and often we struggle. And when they suffered, and when we struggle, we tend to ask questions. God, why are you silent? Lord, why aren't you doing something about this situation or this circumstance? And this brings us to our three lessons. Number one, 
God is not silent, but He's vocal. That's the message of Hebrews. God is not silent. He's vocal. See, God is engaged in a stunning love affair with the human family, which has motivated Him to repeatedly speak with the motivation to make Himself known to man, and which climaxed with God speaking through His Son. So God has spoken and is right here. And it provides the answer to every question that you might have. The second lesson, God is not passive. He's active in the affairs of men. And this is demonstrated most clearly in the Son of God's rendezvous of love at the cross with sinful humanity. And then the third lesson, we are brought face to face with the God who is spoken through His Son. And our response can only can be either what? Reciprocating love or cruel rejection. That's an amazing thing. God has spoken. Motivated by His, by His love to make Himself known. That you might enter a relationship with Him. But God has made Himself vulnerable through that love. And man can either respond in love or man can respond in rejection. And that choice is yours. And that's why there's this admonition over and over again in the book of Hebrews. Don't refuse Him. Because only Jesus has the words of what? Eternal life. And abundant life. We now come to the sharing of the Lord's Supper together. And um, those of you in the church family, it's very obvious we're going to uh, serve the Lord's Supper in a little different fashion this morning. Matter of fact, right now I'm going to ask the... uh, various elders and the deacons to go ahead and take their uh, places. And let me just give you some uh, simple instruction, and uh, then we'll begin the Lord's Supper. Uh, You'll notice there are men in four different stations uh, in front of each of the four sections on the ground level. And we also have a station up in the balcony, for those of you in the balcony, and it's to my right. And uh, when we uh, enter that time to actually uh, partake of the Lord's Supper, uh, we're going to ask you to come uh, to the men. And uh, one of the men will break off a piece of the bread, hand that to you, and you'll dip it in the cup, and then you'll partake of the uh, Lord's Supper. There'll be a deacon at each uh, section. You see a uh, uh, 100-year-old Jim Hildebrand right here. Uh, so he's this uh, section's deacon, and uh, he will tell you when your row is to go. And, uh, and he'll make that very, very clear. And uh, when your row is, uh, when it's indicated for your row to go, everyone is to uh, come to the front, coming to the right, this direction. Exit the pew, coming this way and down to your station, and then, of course, you'll return on the uh, opposite, uh, opposite side. So uh, I believe that uh, is pretty simple and uh, pretty, pretty clear, and I trust this will be very, very meaningful. Uh, oh, thank you very much. And we've also made allowance. Uh, there could be uh, several individuals that literally don't have the physical ability to make their way down to the front of the sanctuary. And what we would ask you to do, when the deacon uh, gets to your aisle to motion for, this, for your aisle to uh, proceed down to the front, if you're unable 
uh, to walk down to the front. If you would just simply raise your hand, uh, we actually have men that will bring the Lord's Supper to you. And, uh, and so, we've, uh, again, we don't want to make this difficult for anyone who does not have the ability uh, to make their way down to the front. So, again, when the deacon gets to your row, simply raise your hand, and there will be men that will come to you to share with you the Lord's Supper. Of course, you're aware that on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, Scripture tells us He took the bread and He broke it. And when he broke it, he said, men, this is my body given for you. Two of the most precious words in the entire Bible. This is my body given for you. Everything Jesus is, everything Jesus did, he did for you. He came to this earth for you. He lived a sinless life for you so that he could be that perfect sacrifice for you. So that He could bear your sins on Calvary's tree to forgive you, to cancel your sin debt. And He rose again for you so that He would be able to impute to you His righteousness. To give you a right standing before God. Not on the basis of your efforts and your performance to earn God's favor. But on the basis of what Jesus Christ did what for you. And Jesus has now, what, exalted for you. He's in that place of supreme authority for you. Why? To ensure that all things work, what? Together for your good, for your Christian development, and the greater glory of God. And then we're told after the supper that he took the cup. And he said this cup represents uh, the new covenant that was cut or written in my blood. And of course, as I've shared with you many times before, the new covenant is simply the last will and testament of Jesus Christ. It's the promises that He guarantees every believer that puts their faith in Jesus. And there are three fundamental promises. Pardon from sin. He said, I'll remember your sins no more. I will not allow your sins to come between me and you. Your relationship is secure. And not only pardon but purity of heart, that He would take out that hard heart and He'd give you a new heart that would hunger for God, that would thirst for God, that would desire God. But not only pardon and purity, His presence. He said, now your body will become my sanctuary and I will dwell with you. I'll be in you uh, to guide you, to bring an intimacy with me into your life. Again, as we shared earlier about Jehovah, so that whatever you need, Truly, He is. And you can experience that adequacy, that strength perfected in the midst of your weakness. Bow with me in prayer. Father, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper now, this is a time to remember. And so, Lord, we right now want to reflect, we want to focus on who Jesus is and what He did for us. And Lord, we thank you. Our hearts are overwhelmed with appreciation. Lord, as we were singing that beautiful song about your grace earlier, I was reflecting on my own life. How at one time I was in bondage to sin, in bondage to drugs and to alcohol and to a sinful lifestyle. 
And in your infinite mercy, you bore my sins on Calvary's cross. You took my place and experienced the punishment that I deserved. That today I might know your life, your love, and your blessings. And so, Lord, thank you for your love for sinners like us. But, Lord, we not only want to remember and look back at what you did, we also want to realize you're here. Jehovah is present. You're the host at this table. And you're telling us truly, whatever we need, you are. And so, Lord, I pray we would experience your grace, that we would experience your presence. We would experience your empowerment, that Christ might be formed in us to be displayed through us. And that as we've seen in our book of Hebrew, in the book of Hebrews, that our eyes would be open to the supremacy of Christ, that infinite prize that is ours, and that we would heed what he has spoken and obey him. For it's in